0: Today's episode of Binge Mode, it's brought to you by Voodoo. Voodoo is a streaming service you can watch on all your favorite devices. Stream more than 6,000 titles oh. for free. Or choose from more than 150,000 titles to rent or buy in up to 4K quality. From the latest Hollywood blockbusters to independent cinema.
1: Head over to voodoo.com slash Binge Mode to sign up and start watching today. That's V-U-D-U dot slash
0: binge mode
1: warning binge mode contains adult content what about death wow death adult enough for you it is it's as adult as it gets so if you're not here for intense existential explorations about the meaning of life and violence and war take it somewhere else (laughs) <laughs> Maybe one of the other light-hearted podcasts That's on the Rigger Podcast Network, like, oh, the Rewatchables. Great one. Tombstone, the latest episode. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers.
0: If you don't yet know why the basilisk fangs are cascading out of our
1: arms. Ron, a great mimic, it turns out. <laughs> Please proceed with extreme caution. And now, Binge Mode. You're underage! Mrs. Weasley shouted at her daughter as Harry approached. I won't permit it! The boys, yes, but you, you've you got to go
0: home! I won't!
1: Ginny's hair flew as she pulled her arm out of her mother's grip.
0: I'm in Dumbledore's army! A teenager's gang!
1: A teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else has dared to do! Said Fred. <laughs>
0: And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. That's right. Proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a (laughs) great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished chasing Snape through the window and from the premises, it's
1: Ringer Senior Creative,
0: your headmaster, Jason Concepcion.
1: Mal, the other headmaster is taking a short break. Binge Mode Harry Potter, meanwhile, is back from one. We want to apologize to everyone for the delay between pods. We both had... The flu, it was horrible. Truly awful. But now we're back to continue exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether or not you had a hammock in the room of requirement, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans, and which is an excellent place to alert Percy to the current state of affairs. He needs to know. Also, head over to TheRinger.com slash shop to check out our Binge Mode merch. Note, Binge Mode merch is not resistant to fiend fire. In fact, nothing is. <laughs> Learn the charm to dismiss the fiend fire. Oh, God. That's all. Tough look for crab. Love roasted crab. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we began our Deathly Hallows Part 2 bundle by exploring how commitment shapes chapters 26 through 28 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 29 through mm. 31, and it is going to get intense in here. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. Yes. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going Deep. Deep. On details from all seven books and ten films, including the new Fantastic Beasts movie and the wider Potter canon, taking the entire series into account from the moment we head down Aberforth's tunnel. So grab your dressing gown mm. and activate those statues, and meet us in the Great Hall because it's time to fight for Hogwarts.
1: Mal, I was a fool. I was an idiot. I was a pompous podcaster, but I've seen the error of my ways. So let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Hallows Chapters 29 to 31 by climbing aboard the scarlet steam engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express Choo Choo.
0: Neville takes our trio through a secret passageway into the Room of Requirement.
1: And Harry investigates the Ravenclaw-related Horcrux he now knows is inside the castle. But the Carrows discover his presence and alert Voldy. Snape flees after a brief duel with Megallion, and the race to secure the castle before Voldemort's forces arrive is on.
0: In the meantime, Ron and Hermione destroy Hufflepuff's cup Horcrux with a basilisk fang and share their first kiss. Never a
1: bad time for romance, folks. This is the best time, actually. Wartime. And Harry discovers the story of Ravenclaw's diadem and its hiding place after talking with the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower, the Grey Lady. Toughing. that's my oh, take on the Grey Lady. I mean.
0: As the Battle of Hogwarts begins to rage, the item is destroyed by fiend fire, foolishly conjured by Vincent Crabb, who perishes in the conflagration. And here we must note, again, it is our responsibility to be transparent with you, the listeners who we cherish. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that Zach Cram wanted Phoenix Song for Vincent Crabb. Quote, Unknowing helper of the good guy's cause. Sound of broiling
1: crab (laughs) for Zachary Crab, the only person out here standing for the crab. Oh, my God. Hogwarts defenses begin to falter under the onslaught, however, and the Death Eaters penetrate the castle. Scores of duels commence, and an explosion rips through the castle wall. Lots of Phoenix song, loud and emotional, for Fred Weasley tragically lost his life in the blast. Mal, binge mode is threatened. Man the boundaries, protect us, do your duty, do our podcast. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The divining theme of chapters 29 and 31 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows is answering the call! Chapter 29, mm.
0: The Lost diadem. It's Neville. Neville fucking Longbottom. Here! In Aberforth's sitting room, here with our friends, Harry can barely get out the words to convey his shock before Neville spots Ron and Hermione to yelps with glee and embraces them. Harry takes in Neville's highly alarming appearance, but the wounds can't mask Neville's transformative euphoria. Quote, his battered visage shone with happiness. Harry asks what's happened to Neville, but he hand waves the question, saying ominously that he's not even the worst of the bunch. <laughs> He then tells Aberforth that there might be a couple more people coming through, and it's clear that Neville and Aberforth have been communicating regularly, that they're in cahoots. And not just that. It's clear that Neville is in command, dispensing updates with a confidence that seems eternal. But it's all the more inspiring because we know how hard-won it actually was. When Aberforth points out the problems with sending more folks down the passage tonight, the curfew, the caterwauling charm, Neville responds without hesitation. Quote, I know, that's why they'll be operating directly into the bar. Just send them down the passage when they get here, will you? Neville, we can see right away, has not stopped fighting, and nor, despite everything that his exchange with Harry just indicated, has Aberforth. He's been helping. He's been answering the call. As Neville leads the trio into the passageway, Harry turns to Aberforth to thank him yet again for saving their lives, not once, but twice. Look after him then, says Aberforth. <laughs> Great reply. I might not be able to save them a third time.
1: (laughs) Harry observes that the passageway looks like it's been there for years, but as Ron notes, it's not on the Marauders' map. All of the seven passages on the map, Neville says, have been sealed all year, blocked with curses and death eaters and dementors and fear. But Neville doesn't want to talk about the passageways. He wants to know if it's true that they broke into Gringotts and escaped on a dragon. It's weirdly uplifting to know that despite the outbreak of open war, the Wizarding World Gossip Mill is going strong. They may be 12 years old again, being heartily congratulated upon entering the common room or arriving at Hogwarts via a flying car. Neville asks what they've been up to, telling Harry, much like Harry overheard from Dirk Ted and Dean and Griphook in Gornock's fireside chat, that some people are saying that he's been on the run, but not Neville. He's sure Harry's been up to something. Sure he's never stopped fighting. Harry, of course, can't tell Neville what that something is, so he settles for, you're right, then redirects to asking about Hogwarts. Quote, well, it's not really like Hogwarts anymore, Neville says, and he carries the air of someone mourning actual loss of life. Hogwarts means so much to these kids. To see the enemy attempt to turn it into a breeding ground for prejudice and hatred isn't something they can abide. This has been their home, the place for so many of the students who enter the hallowed halls of their awakening. Hogwarts is where magical children of all backgrounds embrace their identities, hone the skills that allow them to be witches and wizards. It's where they decide what careers to pursue and meet their lifelong friends. It's where many of them meet their future spouses. It's where they discover who they are. And Voldemort's minions have fundamentally compromised that.
0: Neville asks if they know about the Carrows, two of Voldemort's death eaters who, quote, do more than teach. They're the disciplinarians, Neville explains, and they have such a fetish for punishment that they make Umbridge look tame. Quite an accomplishment. He says that the other teachers are supposed to send students to the Carrows if they transgress, but avoid it at all costs. And while it is agonizing to think of the teachers of Hogwarts caught in this prison much like the students, it's heartening to learn that they're resisting in some small way, too. Dissent comes in many forms. And while it's fair to wonder why the teachers' challenge to the Carrows' foul deeds hasn't been more unified and forceful, it's also worth remembering what they're all actually up against. Voldemort is in control here, or so he thinks, not knowing that Snape is really on Dumbledore's side, watching over Hogwarts as the headmaster asked him to swear he would. A naked provocation from, say, McGonagall or Sprout or Flitwick or Slughorn could cost them their jobs or worse, and with it, the ability to watch over the students in any way that they can, to try to minimize the damage raining down upon them in manners however small. And the authority they're challenging, however quietly, is hideous to behold. Amicus, Neville says, teaches Defense Against the Dark Arts, which is now just the dark arts. As part of his curriculum, students are meant to practice the Cruciatus curse on each other. And we thought Bardi's Imperio lessons were bad. One of the gashes on his face, Neville says, came from his refusal to participate. And while it defies comprehension to think of any student having to do this, it is truly inconceivable to think of what this must have been like for Neville, whose parents were tortured into madness by that very curse. That kind of violence altered the course of Neville's life and Frank and Alice's and Augusta's. The whole Longbottom family and now Voldemort's stooges are seeking to make it
1: routine. Not everyone, Neville says, is fussed about it. In fact, Vinnie Crabb and Goyle have finally found a lesson they're tops in. Everyone has strengths. <laughs> everyone has strengths. Alecto, the sister, is teaching muggle studies, which is now mandatory. Her lesson plans center on explaining how muggles are stupid and dirty like animals from the book, and how the natural order is being reestablished. Recall in Prince how Dumbledore explained the appeal that returning to the castle would have held for Voldemort when he sought a job. It was the place that he had been happiest and felt most at home. It was a stronghold of ancient magic with more secrets to untap, and it would have allowed him great influence over young witches and wizards. I do think he saw it as a useful recruiting ground, Dumbledore told Harry, and a place where he might begin to build himself an army. Lessons like the ones that Caros are dispensing are phase one of Death Eater boot Camp. But again, we learn that Neville is resisting, working to set an example for everyone by showing that even victories that aren't complete are victories nonetheless. He got another gash on his face, he reveals, by asking Electo how much muggle blood she and her brother have. Ron's stunned, noting that there's a time and place, quote, for getting a smart mouth. But Neville's not being cheeky. He's just refusing to give in. And that's incomparably powerful. Recall what Dumbledore told Harry back in Sorcerer's Stone. Quote, it will merely take someone else who is prepared to fight what seems a losing battle next time. And if he's delayed again and again, why? He may never return to power. Neville is fighting that battle. And what's more, he's aware that he's doing it and that it matters to other people. Aware, he says, because that's what he learned from watching Harry refuse to cower. Incredible. Quote, it helps when people stand up to them, Neville says. It gives everyone hope. I used to notice that when you did it, Harry. It's
0: amazing. Plus, Neville's reasonably certain that his pure blood status will save him. They'll torture him to try to keep him in line, but they don't want to spill too much pure blood. Quote, Harry did not know what was worse, the things that Neville was saying or the matter-of-fact tone in which he said them. And if Harry's stunned by someone's bravado, you know it's notable. Neville tells them that the students in real danger are those like Luna, who have friends or family on the outside fighting against depression. They tell Neville that they've seen Luna and know that she's okay. And he says he knows because she managed to get him a message and he pulls out the old fake coins that the DA used to use to set up the dates for their meetings, and from which Neville and Luna received the summons for help the night that Harry and Dumbledore left the castle last year. Quote, we used to sneak out at night and put graffiti on the walls, Neville tells them. Dumbledore's army still recruiting stuff like that. And Harry notices the past tense as Neville's speaking. It got harder, Neville says, when Luna was captured and Ginny didn't return from Christmas, seeing as the three of them were the leaders. Think back to Order of the Phoenix. When Cho showed up at Harry's train compartment door and he thought to himself as she drank in the stink-sap-covered scene, quote, he would have liked Cho to discover him sitting with a group of very cool people laughing their heads off at a joke he had just told. He would not have chosen to be sitting with Neville and Looney Lovegood. Think back as well to later in that same book when Harry stood covered in Grop's blood, desperately trying to find a way to the ministry to rescue Sirius, impatient that he had to keep telling Neville, Luna, and Ginny that they weren't coming with them. Quote, if he could have chosen any members of the DA in addition to himself, Ron and Hermione, to join him in the attempt to rescue Sirius, he thought at the time, he would not have picked Ginny, Neville, or Luna. Harry stopped feeling that way when he saw them fight, when he saw them stick by him at the ministry, and he never once felt that way again. And when he needed help last year in the face of the creeping unknown, the three of them helped arm the castle's defenses against the incursion of Death Eaters right alongside Ron and Hermione. Quote, was that all just a game or something, Neville asked Harry of the D.A. in order when pushing for the chance to fight to do something real? It wasn't. It never has been, and it isn't now. The three friends who helped discover their own courage by watching Harry deploy his answered the call of his absence, not by shrinking into the shadows and assuming all was lost or at least on delay, but by becoming the leaders that they always admired Harry for being. And in a story in which we readers spend so much time in Harry's head and heart, this is one of the most powerful reminders that strength is all around him, too. And that friends are not a weakness, as Voldemort would say, but the key that unlocks the door to victory. In Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore told Harry that, quote, Voldemort himself created his worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. Have you any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? All of them realize that one day, Amongst their many victims, there is sure to be one who rises against them and strikes back. Harry is one, sure, but Neville here is also proving the truth of those words, rising against the face of injustice and despotism to seek freedom and equality. And in mere chapters in King's Cross, Dumbledore will tell Harry, quote, it is a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it those who, like you, have leadership thrust upon them and take up the mantle because they must and find to their own surprise that they wear it well. Those words are among the greatest honors ever bestowed upon Harry, true testaments to his worthiness as a leader and a hero. And like so much else in Harry's life, they apply to Neville too, a boy who was once afraid of his own classmates, afraid of his own family, afraid of his own magic, and has grown into his courage reminding readers everywhere that hard-won confidence and strength are not any less miraculous than the chivalry or wisdom that come naturally to some. Quite the opposite. They're monuments to choice and determination and
1: conviction, to the power of believing in oneself. They ceased quote, those kinds of stunts after the Carrows tortured Michael Corner for releasing a first year they'd chained up. They continued fighting underground, in the shadows, until merely a couple weeks ago when, quote, they decided there was only one way to stop me, I suppose, and they went for Grant. Only Neville reveals, turning to them in the passage and smiling widely. Quote, they bit off a bit more than they could chew with Gran. I guess who got dunked on again? I'll give you literally, <laughs> literally one
0: guess. Literally one guess, because it's all you'll
1: need. Our good pal, dear, dear sweet Dollish, he reveals, is still in St. Mungos after his run in with Gran. And Gran, well, she's on the run. Poor Dollish, more on him in The Seven. Oh, yeah. Quote, she sent me a letter, Neville says, touching the breast pocket of his robes where he's still keeping it, much as Harry keeps his priceless treasures in the pouch hanging over his heart, telling me she was proud of me, that I'm my parents' son, and to keep it up. For so much of his life, Neville, while of course loving his parents and dearly missing them, fiercely and feeling an unwavering pride for all they'd done, he'd also lived much of his life under the shadow of their achievements, struggling to carve out a name for himself, independent of that legacy. That's a legacy he wants to honor, but one he wants to honor by showing that he's his own man. Even after what Neville did at the ministry, the affection and support that his actions unlocked in Gran carried an air of comparative praise. Quote, she was really pleased, Neville told Harry at the beating of Prince. Says, I'm starting to live up to my dad at long last. This feels different. No longer a measuring stick, no longer a contest, but an acknowledgment that Frank and Alice would be proud of the man that Neville has become. Of the honor he does to their memories every day, not by trying to be them, but by being himself. I love Neville.
0: The only rub? Uh, once the Death Eaters realized that going for Grant hadn't worked, Neville knew he faced death or Azkaban at last, regardless of his pure blood status. Quote, I knew it was time to disappear. And Ron is justifiably confused. He's like, we're heading for Hogwarts right now, aren't we? And in fact, they're here. They walk a short staircase to another door, like the one that Ariana's portrait made, and Harry hears Neville call out to people that he can't yet see. Look who it is, didn't I tell you? And when they pop through, shouts greet them. Harry, it's Potter, it's Potter, Ron, Hermione. He can't even really take in the room before he's engulfed by 20-some people hugging them, overjoyed by their appearance. Quote, they might have just won a Quidditch final. Quidditch, never far from the brain. (laughs) Neville asks everyone for calm, and Harry can assess their surroundings at last. Quote, he did not recognize the room at all. It looks to him like the enormous interior of a treehouse or a ship cabin. There are vibrantly colored hammocks all about, bright tapestries on the walls, and the sigil of every house but Slytherin. There are books and brooms and a large wireless. Where are we? Harry asks. Room of requirement, of course, Neville says. Surpassed itself, hasn't it? He ran here, he says, when he was fleeing the Carrows, knowing it was his only chance. And initially, it had just one hammock and the Gryffindor lion, but it has grown to accommodate the masses who now seek it out as home. Harry asks if the Carrows can get in, and Seamus, nearly unrecognizable under his facial wounds, says no. Quote, it's a proper hideout. As long as one of us stays in here, they can't get us. The door won't open. It's all down to Neville, he adds. He really gets this room. You've got to ask it for exactly what you need. Room of requirement, one more link between Voldemort, the Chosen One, and the Nearly Chosen One. Neville isn't looking to brag, though. Quote, it's quite straightforward, really, he says, noting that he'd been in there for a day and a half when he began to badly
1: need food. And that's when the passage to the Hogshead opened up. Harry looks around now to take in, not the room, but the faces. They ask about Gringotts and the dragon, but before Harry can answer the room, fades as pain splits his scar. He's Voldemort, looking around the gone shack, seeing an empty box near the ripped open floorboards. He hears Voldemort's scream of fury, then forces himself back to the present, trying to tell Ron and Hermione with his eyes what he's just seen, that time is running out. Quote, we need to get going, he said, and their expressions told him that they understood. But no one else in the room does. What are we going to do then, Harry, asks Seamus. What are we going to do? Oh my God, it's been so yeah, long. I <laughs> <laughs> Why do y'all <you> know that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Seamus, what's the plan? They think he's there to lead them, to fight for Hogwarts and to fight for them. He says there's something he, Ron, and Hermione need to do, quote, and then we'll get out of here. What do you mean get out of here? Neville asks, looking confused. Harry tells them, impatiently rubbing a scar all the while, that there's something important he, Ron, and Hermione need to do, but he can't tell the rest of them what it is. All book, we've lamented Harry's stubborn insistence on adherence to this particular aspect of Dumbledore's plan. Dumbledore... Told him Not to tell anyone, but Ron and Hermione about the Horcrux hunt because, quote, it would not be a good idea, as Dumbledore told Harry and Prince. Quote, if word got around how much I know or suspect about Lord Voldemort's secret. Well, Voldemort knows now. Yes. They don't need to worry about that part anymore. But more broadly, while we've rooted for Harry to continue to trust in Dumbledore and believe in the mission and their bond, it's never felt quite right that Harry who so often bemoaned and resented Dumbledore's secretive withholding ways, would consent to mimic them, especially in hours of grave need like this. Secrets and lies might have been the currency of life with the Dumbledores, according to Aberforth, but it's never been the currency of life for Harry, whose ability to trust in others and embrace friends, not only as a team members, but as family, has defined so much about his life. Neville, to his undying credit, learned this lesson from Harry and reminds him of it here. Then we'll help you, he says, after getting Harry to at least concede that this all has something to do with you know who. And when Harry fumbles one more time to say that Dumbledore left a job just for the three of them, Neville says, quote, we're his army. Dumbledore's army and we're all in it together. We've been keeping it going while you three have been off on your own. Ron says, look mate, it hasn't exactly been a vacation. There was hardly ever anything but fungi to eat number one. <laughs> Neville says in reply, quote, I never said it had, but I don't see why you can't trust us. Everyone in this room has been fighting, and we've been driven in here because the Karos were hunting them down. Everyone in here has proven they're loyal to Dumbledore, loyal to you. Damn if he is not right.
0: Before Harry can try to push past the pain in his head to argue the point, once more the tunnel opens again and Luna and Dean come through. Neville sent for them using the old DA galleon. When Harry turned up. He'd promised Luna and Ginny that he would. Quote, we all thought that if you came back, it would mean revolution, that we were going to overthrow Snape and the Carrows. And this is really incredible to think about. Neville, Ginny, and Luna are so ready to answer the call that they already have a phone line set up, a messaging system, and a plan in place to account for this very occurrence. They were that sure in Harry, that sure in themselves, that sure in what they all built together. Quote, of course that's what it means, Luna says in reply to Neville's remark. Isn't it, Harry? We're going to fight them out of Hogwarts? And Harry at this point is really starting to panic, increasingly unsure how to extract himself from the confusion of this conversation and increasingly sure that his time to beat Voldemort to the Hogwarts horcrux is running out. I'm sorry, he tells them, but that's not what we came back for, and Michael Corner doesn't mince his words. Are you going to leave us in this mess, he says? And Ron says, of course not, everything they're doing is to stop Voldemort. And here, it's important to pause for a moment to consider perspective, a theme that we like to revisit throughout our Harry Potter discussion. Everyone in this room is on the same side. Everyone is fighting for the same thing. But individual context determines the urgency of the moment. Harry would never, literally never, say or think that his friend's safety didn't matter or that preserving the sanctity of life at Hogwarts didn't matter. Those are the very things that he's fighting to beat Voldemort in order to protect. Those are the very things that he was always afraid he was compromising somewhere along the way. Recall what Dumbledore said to Harry and Prince when they were arguing over Harry's relentless pursuit of Malfoy instead of Slughorn's memory. Ah, Harry, how often this happens, even between the best of friends. Each of us believes that what he has to say is much more important than anything the other might have to contribute. Now, as then, the goal is the same, but the focus of the moment differs based on the facts that each individual possesses. The key is always is to communicate, to rediscover that common ground, to find a way back to remembering that you're working toward the same thing. Quote, what we're doing will benefit everyone in the end. It's all about trying to get rid of you-know-who, Ron says. Then let us help, said Neville angrily. We want to be a
1: part of it. Just then the tunnel opens again and Ginny, Fred, George, and Lee Jordan arrive. From the book, Ginny gave Harry a radiant smile. He'd forgotten. or had never fully appreciated how beautiful she was. But he had never been less pleased to see her. Cho emerges next. Neville apparently messaged more than just Luna and Ginny. Harry's stunned by how many people are suddenly there. How many people have risen to the summons. As Harry tells Neville to stop assembling people. And Dean shares that the message said Harry was back. And they were all going to fight. Ron, sweet Ron, realizes what we've been saying all along. Why can't they help? He says to Harry whispering so that only Harry and Hermione can hear. He reminds them that they don't actually know where the object is and that they actually have to find it quite quickly. They need help, and they can get it here without revealing that they're looking specifically for a casing for the Dark Lord's soul. Hermione agrees with Ron and adds a little existential nudge to help seal it. You don't have to do everything alone, Harry. And as Harry takes in these words, he asks himself the very question we just posed. Quote, secrets and lies. That's how we grew up. And Albus. He was a natural. Was he turning into Dumbledore, keeping his secrets clutched to his chest, afraid to trust? He turns to the room and calls for quiet. There's something we need to find, he tells them, and they're all wrapped. Something something that'll help us overthrow you-know-who. He tells them that it's here at Hogwarts, but they don't know where. That it might have belonged to Ravenclaw, but they don't know what it is. He asks if any of them have heard of such a thing. And Luna, of course, has. Well, there's her lost item you damn right there is, Luna. Uh-huh. I told you about it. Remember, Harry? The lost diadem of Ravenclaw? Daddy's trying to duplicate it. Incredible.
0: <laughs> She's the
1: best. Michael mocks Luna by noting that it's lost. <laughs> That's why they call it that. But Harry asks when it was lost, and Cho says, only centuries ago, vanishing with Ravenclaw herself, with no one since finding even a trace. Harry, Ron, and Hermione all feel deflated. Something gone this long doesn't seem likely to be in the castle, he reasons. But before he can redirect the group, Cho says she can show Harry what a diadem looks like if he'd like. Ravenclaw is wearing it in her statue in the common room. As another flash of Voldemort in flight passes before his eyes, he tells Ron and Hermione that he's going to go for a look, given that that's their only lead. Ginny hilariously insists on Luna taking Harry instead of Cho. Oh! Yes, I'd like to, said Luna happily. And Cho sat down again, looking disappointed. Cho. Oh, Cho. Oh,
0: God teen angst, always present. Harry and Luna follow the Room of Requirements' egress back into the castle. A stairway that Neville says leads to a new exit point every time for safety. Harry and Luna get under the cloak, enter the school corridor, and consult the Marauder's Map to discern their location. Treading with extreme care, they make their way, per Luna's lead, up the spiral staircase of Ravenclaw Tower, and they reach the door at last. But there's no handle or keyhole, just an eagle-shaped knocker. This is really cool. Luna reaches out and knocks. Quote, in the silence, it sounded to Harry like a cannon blast. The eagle's beak opens and speaks, issuing not a request for a password, but a riddle that they must solve in order to enter. So cool. Shouts to all the Ravenclaws out there who
1: have to deal with this no matter, know, like, like, how sloshed they are on illicit year. gear. <laughs> Someone, there's always got to be the one person who doesn't get hammered so they can answer the riddle <laughs> and get everybody inside. And
0: the following absolutely iconic exchange ensues. Quote, which came first, the phoenix or the flame? Quite thematically apt right now. We can yes. certainly agree. Hmm, what do you think, Harry? Said Luna, looking thoughtful. What? Harry says. Isn't there just a password? Oh, no. You've got to answer a question, said Luna. What if you get it wrong? Says Harry. Well, you have to wait for somebody who gets it right, said Luna. That way you learn, you see? (laughs) She is the best. Harry, however, points out they don't really have time for learning lessons right now or for waiting for another person if they get it wrong or for being seen by other people at all. No, I see what you mean, said Luna seriously. Well, then, I think the answer is that a circle has no beginning. Again, about as appropriate and poetic as possible right now. Well-reasoned, the door says, and it swings open. And the common room is wide and circular and airy, with arched windows around the walls and a painted domed ceiling. Seems dope as fuck, honestly. They move to the white marble statue of Rowena Ravenclaw, whom Harry does in fact recognize from the busted Zeno loves, so shouts to Zeno on his realistic rendering. And Harry sees words etched on the statue and he moves out from under the cloak to get a closer look. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure, he reads aloud, which makes you pretty skit, witless. said a cackling voice? And Harry whirls around, slipping off the statue's base, and falls to see a lecdo caro herself in front of him. Harry reaches for his wand, but she reaches
1: for something, too. Her dark mark, which she presses with a stubby finger. Chapter 30, The Sacking of Severus Snape. Pain rips through Harry's scar the moment Electo presses her mark. The Death Eaters, too, are putting out the word. Will the Dark Lord answer the call, the desperately eager call of his sycophantic minions? Harry feels Voldemort's thoughts from the book. He was standing upon an outcrop of rock beneath a cliff, and the sea was washing around him, and there was triumph in his heart. They have the boy. Harry's yanked back into himself by a bang, and the sight of Electo falling hard, face first onto the floor. (laughs) Luna. Woof. Warm-hearted and spacey in our D.A. lessons just put her training to use. I've never stunned anyone except in our D.A. lessons. That was noisier than I thought it would be, (laughs) says Luna from under the cloak. There's a rumble of footsteps. The Ravenclaw students alerted by the sound of Luna's stunner and Alecto's body crashing to the floor, rushing to see what's the matter. Harry ducks back under the cloak just before the students arrive. In a very Lord of the Fliesian moment, they circle her, quote, a savage beast that might wake at any moment and attack them. And then one first year bravely pokes her with his toe before proclaiming with glee that he thinks she might be dead. Oh, look, they're pleased, (laughs) Luna whispers to Harry. Just like the members of the Order of the Phoenix aren't the only adults who'd want to thwart Voldemort, neither are the former members of the DA. Back in the Room of Requirement the only members of the student body eager to push back against oppression either. Hogwarts has been aching to strike back against the Death Eater regime. Think about the way Dumbledore described, in *Prince* the people who are drawn to Riddle. Quote, "...they were a motley collection, a mixture of the weak seeking protection, the ambitious seeking some shared glory, and the thuggish gravitating toward a leader who could show them more refined forms of cruelty. The people who want to fight Tom Riddle are a motley collection, too, and they're about to get their chance." Harry, who's been resisting the pain in his scar so often today, now deliberately uses the connection to try to get a status update, a gauge on how much time they have before Voldemort reaches the castle. Through the Dark Lord's eyes, Harry sees him moving through the tunnel under the cliff, heading for the Great Cave and the lake within. He knows now for certain that Voldemort has chosen, even after Electopressus or Darkmark, to confirm the locket's status before coming to Hogwarts. They have a bit more time, but not much.
0: Just then, Harry hears commotion outside the door to the Ravenclaw common room, and then the knocker is showing a new entry question. Where do vanished objects go? Electo's brother Amicus is outside, and boy, is he raising a ruckus. Clearly not the sharpest Death Eater out there. He has no aptitude for the Ravenclaw door knocker's magical riddles, and is instead rudely attempting to gain entry to confirm that his sister has Harry through sheer force of his threats. To a hammer? Everything looks like a nail. And to a death eater, the answer to every problem is some sort of threat or oppression or violence. Then, as the students in the tower begin to scurry in fear, and Harry contemplates emerging from under the cloak to stun Amicus too, the brother's thundering is joined by a familiar brogue. Minerva Magallion's sweet vocal music. <laughs> And McGonagall does not understand why. If Electo is within, she can't just open the door. Didn't Professor Flitwick let her in earlier this evening at your urgent request, she asks? There it is, right for Harry to hear. Proof, though there's too much chaos unfolding in this moment for him to pause and process it here, that Voldemort thought Harry would go to Ravenclaw Tower. Because the Hogwarts Horcrux is, in fact, a Ravenclaw heirloom. She ain't answering, you old bazoom, (laughs) Amicus shouts back. You open it. Garn, do it now. Certainly if you wish it, said Professor McGonagall, with awful coldness. (laughs) The question, where do vanished objects go, is no problem for McGonagall, a prodigious witch in possession of plenty of wit herself. More on this in The Seven. Mm -hmm. Quote, into non-being, which is to say everything, she replies, and the door is impressed. Nicely phrased, it says. We agree. The door swings open and Amicus is beside himself at the sight of his stunned sister, who, because he is a complete moron, apparently devoid (laughs) of magical ability or awareness, he thinks is dead. The same thought, remember, that a first year just
1: happened. Not the smartest Death Eater. And they're not a sharp bunch (laughs) to begin with. His terror is real, though. After all, quote, what's
0: the Dark Lord going to say? There's one thing that Voldemort's been pretty clear on. It's that he really hates it when his followers lose Harry Potter
1: after summoning he hates that, Voldemort. He really hates that. It's a thing that he hates so much. <laughs> They're making it something of a habit at yeah. this point.
0: When he next answers this call, he damn well intends to find his prey waiting for him. McGonagall's comment that Electo has only been stunned and will thus be perfectly all right, she says meets with justifiable opposition from Amicus for that very reason. No, she bludgering well won't, he says. Not after the Dark Lord gets hold of her. She's gone and sent for him. I felt me Mark burn. And he thinks
1: we've got Potter. McGonagall cannot believe what she's hearing. Got Potter? What do you mean, got Potter? Amicus says that Lord Voldemort tasked he and his sister with, in addition, obviously, to their important work, torturing the students into submission, staking out Ravenclaw Tower. Quote, he told us Potter might try and get inside Ravenclaw Tower and send for him if we caught him. Why would Harry Potter try to get inside Ravenclaw Tower? Potter belongs in my house! And Harry's heart swells to hear the pride in McGonagall's voice when she says this. And amid the terror and unpredictability of all that's unfolded, this is a variable to warm the soul. There are so many ties that bind Harry to the various people in his life. So much shared history that unite them. Harry is undesirable number one. The most wanted target of Voldemort's brutal regime, showing support for Harry is essentially to proclaim oneself a traitor. Mm -hmm. But there are no threats, scary enough, no dark power strong, enough, no curse capable of separating Harry from Gryffindor and his connection to Hogwarts. As we shall soon see, when McGee makes her speech to the students, Gryffindors are galvanized by their association with the Chosen One. McGonagall's courageous intransigence stands in stark contrast to Amicus's sickening, cowardly desire to simply avoid blame. We could push it off on the kids, said Amicus, his pig-like face suddenly crafty. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll say Electa was ambushed by the kids, them kids up there, adding, he can punish them. Couple of kids, more or less. What's the difference? Jesus. This is vile. And Megalian, who was scanning the room for signs of hair just moments ago fearlessly says that this is fucked up to his face. Reprehensible. Only the difference between truth and lies, courage and cowardice, said Professor McGonagall, who had turned pale. A difference, in short, which you and your sister seem unable to appreciate. But let me make one thing very clear. Yeah, girl. You're not going to pass off your many ineptitudes on the students of Hogwarts, I shall not permit it. As we discussed earlier, the teachers of Hogwarts, like the students of Hogwarts, have been balancing on a knife's edge all year pushing back enough to avoid unchecked abuse, but also operating with enough care to, frankly, survive. Yes. But right here with the students he's entrusted to protect being offered up spinelessly as bait, she answers the call that makes her not only a model educator, but a model protector. We can see from Amicus's response how rare this kind of challenge is, but oppressors rarely know how to handle it when those that they oppress rise up against them. Excuse me, Amicus says, and he draws close to the head of Gryffindor House. Megalian does not back down from the book she refused to back away but looked down at him as if he were something disgusting she had found stuck to a lavatory seat and he tells her wrongly it's not a case of what you'll permit Minerva McGonagall. your time's over it's us what's in charge here now and you'll back me up or you'll pay the price and then he spits in her face you shouldn't have done that
0: harry says (laughs) this is such a heart thumping moment (laughs) as he pulls off the cloak and as soon as Amicus spins toward him, he casts Crucio on-, Woo! <laughs> on the startled Death Eater who writhes and screams in mid-air from the force of Harry's spell and then smashes into a bookcase and crumples to the floor. I see what Bellatrix meant, said Harry, the blood thundering through his brain.
1: You need to really mean it.
0: Chilling.
1: Yeah, quite chilling.
0: This moment is unmooring, but Harry's sudden affinity for unforgivables after his long, loyal, and fruitful relationship with Expelliarmus is also bracing for him an acknowledgement on the soul deep level that allows him to now conjure this magic that a state of war undeniably exists. We have to hope that war will not change who we are, but inevitably it changes how we behave. The Dark Lord and his evil, cowardly minions will ask no quarter and will give none. Harry and those on his side will show mercy, will hold on to the humanity that sets them apart. But that doesn't mean they won't change a little along the road that they're traveling with this foe. And McGonagall is amazed to see her favorite seeker back at the school, but she's not about to drop the bag of gratitude without a little trademark sternness to boot. Potter, she whispers, and she's clutching her heart as she does so. Potter, you're here. What? How? How? Potter, that was foolish. He spat at you, Harry says, in a truly charming and endearing moment that despite the seismic shifts happening around them every instant right now, is as vintage Harry as it gets. Logic and methodical action are all well and good, but sometimes our guy has to lead with his heart and his gut. It might not always be sensible, but it's what makes Harry Harry, a person who fights for others and whom others want to fight for, too. McGonagall, while touched, is not quite seeing eye to eye with Harry on the wisdom of his chivalrous deployment of the Cruciatus curse. Potter, I, that was very, very gallant of you, but don't you realize? Yeah, I do. Harry assured her somehow her panic steadied him. Professor McGonagall, Voldemort's on the way. With Voldemort coming anyway, The taboo doesn't matter now, as Harry tells Luna, as she too emerges from the cloak and asks if they're allowed to speak his name again, and McGonagall damn near faints upon the sudden appearance of a second missing student, literally falling into a chair and clutching her garments for support. As Harry tells Luna that Voldemort knows that Harry is at Hogwarts, he sees, in his mind's eye, behind his burning scar, Voldemort gliding in the tiny boat over the familiar dark water toward that haunting, distant
1: green glow. Not long now, Harry knows. McGonagall, of course, not knowing what Harry's seeing, implores him to flee. He tells her that he can't, because, cue the familiar refrain, there's something he needs to do. He asks, as insane as it sounds, if she knows where Ravenclaw's diadem is. Of course not! Hasn't it been lost for centuries? Yes, but can we—we can't let small details like that get in the way. (laughs) Professor, Harry is insistent. There's something he needs to find, and it might be the diadem. He must speak with Flitwick. And at this moment, Amicus begins to stir, and before Harry and Luna can act— Megallion instantly imperios him. (laughs) Effortless imperio. (laughs) Harry's not alone here, friends. Under her control, Amicus goes to get his sister's wand, hands them both to Megallion, then lays down next to his sister where Megallion binds them together with rope. Expertly done, really. Harry feels, quote, a wrath that was like a physical pain as Voldemort, reaching the potion basin at last, sees that the locket is gone. Still not knowing, of course, that the real one has been gone for some time. With greater urgency now, Harry clutching Luna's shoulder for support, Harry expresses the direness to McGonagall. Voldemort's getting close. They must get the students to safety before Voldemort comes, and Harry is, quote, acting on Dumbledore's orders. You're acting on Dumbledore's orders, she repeated with a look of (laughs) dawning wonder. Then she drew herself up to her fullest height. That's all Harry needed to say, really. Dumbledore's death impacted many, in myriad unique ways. But on some level, his death, on the grounds of the school he dedicated his life to serving, felt like a violation of duty for all who call Hogwarts home. Here's a chance to write some perceived, albeit incorrectly perceived, wrong, to rally the school to serve Dumbledore one more time. McGonagall and Hogwarts are ready to answer the call. Quote, "'We shall secure the school against he who must not be named while you search for this, this object.' Yes! Yes! Is that possible, Harry asks? McGonagall thinks so. We teachers are rather good at magic, you know. Incredible. I'm sure we will be able to hold him up for a while if we all put our best efforts into it.
0: Yes! McGallion! Of course, she says, they'll need to do something about the current headmaster, Severus Snape. Snape is, as far as anyone currently alive knows, a Death Eater, Voldemort's right hand, Albus Dumbledore's murderer. And with Dumbledore gone, No one but Snape knows that the former potions master is marching to a tune that only he hears. That he has been, for years, winding his way through an endless darkness, following the light of Lily's dough. Harry has two words from McGonagall in response to her note about needing to deal with Snape. Let me... (laughs) Oh, man. He craves this showdown, this chance for revenge, still having no idea, and how could he, what their final encounter will actually bring. But McGonagall is running rapidly through the checklist in her mind now that the picture is a little clearer to her. If Hogwarts is about to be under Voldemort's siege, they need to get out as many students as possible. But with the flu network monitored and apparition impossible on the school grounds, How? There's a way, Harry says, and he tells Megallion about the tunnel from the room of requirement to the hog's head. With Voldemort focused on the school, the students just might be able to disapparate safely from Hogsmeade undetected. Megallion agrees because, really, what other path do they have? This is the best bet. She jinxes the caros into a net and hangs them from the ceiling. <laughs> and then says, come. We must alert the other heads of house. You'd better put that cloak back on. And she casts her cat Patronus, shouts to cats, and three silver felines burst forth to carry the message. Passive? Resistance? That's over. It's
1: time for Hogwarts to fight. Harry, Luna, and McGonagall race through the halls, and the professor's Patronuses light up the stairs, then peel off one by one to alert the heads of house. Our friends travel on, and two floors down— Someone else's footsteps reach their ears, but before Harry can consult the Marauder's Map, McGonagall raises her wand and speaks, Who's there? It is, I said a low voice, and Severus Snape, oh, man. the double game that only he knows he's still running, nearing its end. And his life nearing his end, too, steps out from behind a suit of armor. Oh Harry feels rage bubble up at the sight of the man. He considers the Order's great traitor, the murderer of Albus Dumbledore. He notices that Snape, unlike McGonagall, isn't in night clothes but fully dressed. Of course, he, like Amicus, would have felt that Electo had pressed her mark to mm. summon Voldemort. Unlike the Carrows, he has a very different awareness of what that might mean. He hasn't yet seen the warning sign that we'll see Dumbledore tell him in the princess tale to watch for. Nagini kept close to Voldemort, protected rather than weaponized. But we can assume, with the clarity of what's to come, that he must sense the moment that Dumbledore warned him about drawing near. Must know there's a chance that fateful reveal is about to play out. Snape asks where the caros are, and his eyes sweep the air around McGonagall. He knows Harry. He knows he might be there now under his cloak. Mm-hmm. There's something affirming about moments like this, these subtle reminders of how well Snape and Harry really do know each other. Snape says that he was under the impression that Electro had apprehended an intruder. And when McGowan says, what gave you that idea? He flexes his left arm. Oh, but naturally, Minerva says, you Death Eaters have your own private means of communication. I forgot. This moment is so charged. Will Snape finally snap at the injustice of it all, especially for McGonagall, which We know he truly cares for and admires. Will McGonagall take this chance to attack Snape directly, ridding the castle of his presence in what he thinks is a one-on-one meeting here? Will Harry attack from underneath his cloak?
0: Well, listen, reputation aside, our guy Snape isn't a fight-first wizard. Think back to the obstacle that he put before the Sorcerer's Stone back in Harry's first year, the potions riddle. Cool logic, rational thought. He's not just going to attack McGonagall here in the middle of the hallway. He's going to try to figure out what's happening. And in a way, that's scarier because he's plenty capable of doing just that. And of course, when reading this for the first time, you don't know Snape's true agenda. The fear is palpable as you wonder if you're still not on Snape's side whether Dumbledore's killer can now finish the job for Voldemort by discovering Harry here. Quote, I did not know that it was your night to patrol the corridors, Minerva. You have some objections, she asks. I wonder what could have brought you out of your bed at this late hour, he says. This is certainly not the first time that Snape's unwanted presence in a Hogwarts corridor has complicated matters for Harry Potter. But the stakes have never been higher. This is not a flight from the restricted section or a trip back from Hogsmeade or a return from a bath with a singing egg. The fate of the wizarding world rests on making it out of this interaction with the ability to go hunt for the diadem intact. McGonagall tells Snape that she's out of bed because she heard a disturbance. Really, Snape says, but all seems calm. Whew! McGonagall's options are rapidly narrowing here. Quote, Snape looked into her eyes. Have you seen Harry Potter, Minerva? Because if you have, I must insist. The passage continues Professor McGonagall moved faster than Harry could have believed. Her wand slashed through the air. Queen! Snape is ready for her, though, with a shield charm just as swift as McGonagall's jinx. She turns her wand toward a torch on the wall, shooting it forward and causing Harry, who was about to join the fight, to pull Luna out of the way instead as the fire forms a lasso that tries to wrangle Snape. This isn't exactly Dumbledore versus Voldemort in the Ministry Atrium or Dumbledore versus the Inferi in the cave. But there are shades of both, and it's a testament to the skill and courage on display here as well. Time and again throughout the series, Minerva McGonagall has reminded us that she is so much more than a tight bun and a stern voice and a nifty animagus party trick. She is fiercely loyal, unwilling, unable to abandon her allies or her charges. She's brilliant. She's brave. And she can handle more than a betting line, folks. Our girl can handle that wand. Mm -hmm. The fire turns to a serpent, which turned to
1: daggers, which Snape avoids by using the suit of armor as a shield. Just then, Flitwick, Sprout, and Slughorn arrive. No! Flitwick squeaks, taking in the scene. You'll do no more murder at Hogwarts! And he charms the suit of armor behind which Snape is sheltering to life, and Snape struggles free of its metal arms. Harry and Luna have to dive to avoid the flying armor. From the book. When Harry looks again, Snape was in full flight. McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout all thundering after him. He hurtled through a classroom door, and moments later he heard McGonagall cry, Coward! Coward! We know, of course, what effect this word has on Snape. Recall Snape's showdown with Harry in front of Hagrid's burning hut last year. Don't, screams Snape, and his face was suddenly demented and human as though he was in as much pain as the yelping, howling dog stuck in the burning house behind them. Call me coward! And soon in the princess tale, we learn why. Here, Luna and Harry run into the classroom after the shouts and see the heads of house standing in front of a smashed window. McGonagall tells them Snape jumped. You mean he's dead? Harry asks. Ignoring the near heart attacks, his sudden appearance of given Flitwick and Sprout, McGonagall says that no, he's not dead. And, quote, he seems to have learned a few tricks from his master, and Harry looks out the window, and, quote, with a tingle of horror, Harry saw in the distance a huge bat-like shape flying through the darkness toward the perimeter wall. Snape can fly.
0: Heavy footsteps announced that Slughorn has caught up with the group. Harry, my dear boy, what a surprise. (laughs) Minerva, please do explain Severus. What? (laughs) Just an elite rundown there from the slug. As McGonagall tells Slughorn that Snape's taking a bit of a siesta from his headmastership. Harry's head splits again, and he sees the ghostly boat gliding over the inferior infested waters and reaching the cave shore. Quote, Voldemort leapt from it with murder in his heart. Harry shouts out in panic, telling them they have to get the school set now. He's on his way. And McGonagall says, let's go truly remarkable calm and poise on her part, and then tells the other heads of house that Voldemort is on the way. Quote, Sprouted Flitwick gasped Slughorn and let out a low groan. <laughs> Again, signature JKR here. Things could not possibly be more tense, and yet here we are, laughing at Sluggy special. She tells them Harry has a job to do and that they need to put every protection in place while he searches. Flitwick tells her that nothing they do will hold you-know-who for good. Quote, But we can hold him up, Sprout says, and McGonagall thanks her. Quote, I love this, between the two witches, there passed a look of grim understanding. Special moment here. Not only was Sprout proving her mettle too, but with a real sheesh men subtext that is so loud, it's almost audible. But this whole scene recalls the moments following Dumbledore's death when the heads of house, Hagrid and Harry, stood in the headmaster's office and debated the future of the school. They didn't all fully agree then, and they don't all fully agree now. But that doesn't matter. They're aligned in a core way, following their central mission. As Sprout said last year, quote, I feel that if a single pupil wants to come, then the school ought to remain open for that pupil. Now, if there's a single pupil to protect, they ought to work to protect that pupil. McGonagall takes the lead on strategy, ordering basic protections around the castle and the gathering of all students in the Great Hall. From there, they'll evacuate many. But those who are of age, she says, will be given the opportunity to stay if they want to help. And it is a very Dumbledorian moment of acknowledging that those many others would dismiss as children, kids, mm-hmm. deserve the chance to serve for what they love, deserve the chance to try their strength.
1: Sprout agrees, running off, muttering the names of all the plants she intends to deploy as defenses. Flitwick begins his work from where he stands. Quote, Harry heard a weird rushing noise as though Flitwick had unleashed the power of the wind into the grounds, which is so fun to think about. Harry asks him about the diadem, and Flitwick adorably thinks Harry wants to wear it to gain extra wisdom (laughs) out of this fight. Quote, I only meant, do you know where it is? Have you ever seen it? Seen it. Nobody's seen it in living memory. Long since lost, boy. Harry's starting to really panic now. Is it possible the Horcrux is something else? In which case, he has no idea where to start. And even if it is the diadem, he's no closer to finding it than he was when this search within the castle began. Just as McGonagall, Harry, and Luna are leaving Slughorn speaks. My word, what did you do? I'm not at all sure whether this is wise, but he's bound to find a way in, you know? And anyone who has tried to delay him will be in most grievous peril. This will not be the finest moment of House Slytherin. Let me just say this from top to bottom. Yeah. It's going to be a very tough very couple tough. Of hours for, for House <laughs> Slytherin. When Dumbledore was first recruiting Slughorn, we discussed the complexity of his moral code, And we see it here again. He isn't a bad guy. He wants to do what's right. But often, his instincts for self-preservation trump his instincts to help others. Slughorn wouldn't need a reminder to put the oxygen masks on him, on himself before his fellow passengers, for instance. <laughs> But his tendencies are driven not by malice or hatred, as is the case of so many of Voldemort's followers, but rather by fear. The lamentable but all too human and relatable fear of the loss of one's comfortable routine. And of course, in Sluggy's case, the fear of facing the thing he inadvertently helped create when he answered Tom Riddle's Horcrux questions oh so many years ago. McGonagall is not an unsympathetic person by nature, but her focus here is all-consuming. Her empathy reserved for those who are determined to stand tall with her. Hold your hats for this next quote, folks, lest the heat from the take blast (laughs) it off your heads. I shall expect you and the Slytherins in the Great Hall in 20 minutes. Also, said Professor McGonagall, if you wish to leave with your students, we shall not stop you. But if any of you attempt to sabotage our resistance or take up arms against us within this castle, then Horus, we duel to kill. We duel to kill! Oh my god! Think back to the argument Harry and Lupin had in the wake of the Seven Potters battle and how foreign and horrifying the idea of killing the enemy felt to Harry when Lupin presented it. I won't blast people out of my way just because they're there, Harry told Lupin, when defending his decision not to stun Stan Shunpike in midair, thus as good as killing him directly. That's Voldemort's job. McGonagall's point, ultimately, is that there's no more being in the way just because you're there. The moment to choose a side really and fully has come. Yes. Answer the call of good or brand yourself an enemy. Minerva, he said aghast. <laughs> the time has come for Slytherin House to decide upon its loyalties, interrupted Professor McGonagall. Go and wake your students, Horace. What an icon. Just from the moment she arrives in this
0: stretch of chapters, yes. it is perfect. <sighs> Harry, Luna, and McGonagall run on, but before McGonagall can begin casting her protective enchantments, Filch arrives, shouting, this fucking idiot, about students being out of bed. They're supposed to be, you blithering idiot, <laughs> McGonagall tells him. And then says to go, quote, do something constructive. And she orders him specifically to find peeves. It, it really is all hands on deck time, folks, when you're looking for peeves, deliberately. Phil just like, who did you say peeves? Quote, yes, peeves, you fool peeves. Haven't you been complaining about him for a quarter of a century? <laughs> go and fetch him at once. Rid of the muttering filch, McGonagall casts her spell. per totum locomotor all across the castle. The statues and suits of armor jump down from their plinths to the corridor floors, magicked into life. This is so cool. Hogwarts is threatened, she shouts to them. Man the boundaries. Protect us. Do your duty to our school. And that right there is fascinating, really wonderful phrasing. McGonagall doesn't need to convince the statues. They're literally under her spell. They're there to do her bidding. But she doesn't see it that way. And effective leaders never do. She's issuing the call, presenting it for them to answer. Do your duty to our school. Harry watches the statues of all shapes and sizes, some human, some animal, marching in reply, the suits of armor carrying swords and spikes. And McGonagall tells Harry and Luna to go get the rest of their friends while she goes to Gryffindor Tower for the other students. Harry and Luna pass pajama-clad students as they run, and the kids call after them. That was Potter, Harry Potter. At last, they reach the room of requirement again, but it's not as they left it. It is jammed with new people. Quote, I love this. Kingsley and Lupin were looking up at him. I just love these precious final moments with Lupin. Very hard to read this, knowing how close he is to death. Oliver Wood is there, and Katie Bell, and Angelina Johnson, and Elisa Spinett. The old Quidditch gang. And Bill and Floor are there, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley too. And Lupin asks Harry what's happening, and he tells them, no longer being coy. Voldemort is on his way. Snape has made a run for it. He asks how they're all here, and Fred explains that they sent messages to the rest of the DA. Quote, and the DA let the order of the Phoenix know, and it all kind of snowballed. George asks, what next? And Harry tells them that the younger kids are being evacuated first. Quote, everyone's meeting in the Great Hall to get organized, he says. We're fighting. The passage continues, there was a great roar and a surge toward the foot of the stairs. He was pressed back against the wall as they ran past him. The mingled members of the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore's army, and Harry's old Quidditch team, all with their wands drawn, heading up into the main castle. And this is a truly remarkable moment. This isn't just fighting the Carrows or fighting Umbridge. Not that either of those were small things, of Mm -hmm. course. But Harry just told every person in that room that Voldemort himself was on the way. And still, they roared as one in answer. Still, they ran forward to protect this castle and each other and the very fabric of their lives. Harry has never wanted anyone else to get hurt for him, to die for him. Here, everyone is showing him how much weight the word army and order carry. They are a team. They are a family. And they're not going to let each other down.
1: After the crowd thins only Harry, Molly, Arthur, Ginny, Lupin, Fred, George, Bill, and Flora left, Molly and Ginny are arguing about whether Ginny can fight. Molly points out that Ginny is underage. Ginny points out, for her part, that she was in Dumbledore's army. A teenager's gang, Molly says, cruelly, in a way fueled by her maternal terror. A teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else dared to do, Fred shouts. Bill agrees, with Molly noting that everyone else who's underage will be going home, though we'll soon see, tragically for our guy Colin Creevy, that isn't true. But Ginny, crying in frustration, says she can't stand being away from him, waiting, not knowing, while everyone she loves is here. They want to protect her, but it isn't fair what they're asking of her. She looks to Harry with hope, but he looks away. He knows how both Ginny and Molly feel, how badly Ginny wants to fight, and how helpless it would feel not to, almost like a betrayal. But he knows, too, how unthinkable the idea of her in danger is. But just as Ginny is about to concede defeat and head back up to the tunnel, someone else tumbles out of it. Percy. Percy Wow. Percy is back. Wow. Little Mr. Weatherby, little, if anything, could have prepared readers for this moment. Another hallmark moment for J.K., choosing precisely the perfect instinct to close a loop we always knew she'd return to, but somehow doing it in a way that shocks us. Yes. Percy stumbles and falls and pulls himself up and looks over his signature horn ring glasses to say, am I too late? Has it started? I only just found out. Fleur tries to make small talk with Lupin to break the tension. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> From the book, the silence between the Weasleys seemed to be solidifying like ice. Lupin does his best to play along with Fleur, telling her that Teddy is with Tonks at her mother's, and even breaking out a photo of a happy waving baby with a tuft of turquoise hair. Econizing. But someone else breaks the silence to Percy, who shouts without a preamble, I was a fool. I was an idiot. I was a pompous prat. I was a, a ministry-loving, family-disowning, power-hungry moron, Fred suggests. Yes, I was. <laughs> Well, you can't say fairer than that, Fred says, sticking out a hand for his estranged brother to shake, and Molly bursts into tears and puts Percy into a strangling hug. And Arthur blinks rather rapidly as Percy says, I'm sorry, Dad, then hugs his son too. George asks Percy what changed, and Percy, wiping the tears from his eyes, says he's been waiting to for a while, but had to work carefully and slowly to extract himself from the current ministry regime. Eventually, he managed to make contact with Aberforth, who led him here. Quote, Well, we do look to our prefects to take a lead at times such as these, says George, in one of these series' quietly best reminders that no matter what life throws at us, no matter how deep and unbreachable a falling out seems, love can always lead us back instantly to the rhythms of our former life. Percy seems hopelessly lost, a power-hungry traitor who put his career unambiguously, even proudly, over his family, who let his ambitions blind him and lead him astray. But in the moment of truth, the moment of need— he put his life on the line to return to the light, to stand by his family and friends, and work to preserve rather than tear down the good.
0: As Percy shakes
1: Flora's hand and makes her
0: acquaintance, not as a Triwizard Stand-in Judge, but as a brother-in-law, Molly spots Ginny trying to sneak into the castle, and Lupin offers up a compromise: What if Ginny stays in the rumor requirement? That way, she'll be informed, but out of the line of fire. Arthur and Ginny agree, and then the adults head off to the Great Hall, leaving Harry to ask, "Hey, where are Ron and Hermione?" They said something about a bathroom, said Ginny, not long after you left. Harry is befuddled, though we'll soon learn that this references Moaning Myrtle's bathroom and a trip down to the Chamber of Secrets to retrieve some Horcrux killing basilisk fangs. Here, Harry checks the room requirements bathroom and finds it empty. But before he can follow his puzzlement much further, his scar burns, and he's looking through Voldemort's eyes, through the gate, up to the castle, Nagini over his shoulders. Voldemort has arrived at Hogwarts, and folks, he's pissed. Now, a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: Today's episode of Binge Mode is brought to you by Voodoo. Voodoo is a streaming service you can
0: watch on all your favorite devices, including smart TVs. Yes. Roku. Yes. Chromecast.
1: Yes. iPhone. Okay. Android phone. Or the web. Wow. Stream over 6,000 titles for free, including classic and nostalgic movies and TV shows. Or. Choose from more than
0: 150,000 titles to no. rent or buy. And up to 4K quality. From the latest Hollywood blockbusters to independent cinema.
1: Free movies are refreshed monthly, so it never gets old. Important.
0: Voodoo is not a subscription service,
1: so there are no monthly fees. Watch free movies and TV, or rent or buy only what you want. All of the Harry oh. Potter films are available to rent or buy I at saw Voodoo. them there. You can get them as a package Fabulous And you can
0: now convert your DVDs or Blu-rays to digital Whoa! Starting at just
1: $2 at voodoo.com oh slash disc Download them to your devices to watch anytime, anywhere, even without an internet connection Listen, is great Both of us, recovering from the flu Yeah When you have the flu, you're out of commission
0: You need something to take your mind off your own misery You know what I did? I booted up voodoo You know what I
1: watched? Tell me Venom in 4K. My God, you know what I did? I bought the Lord of the Rings collection. Fabulous. And I watched all of them in one day. Tremendous. As I was laying there in my sickbed. Beautiful. Beautiful holiday tradition watching Lord of the Rings. Lovely. Head over to voodoo.com slash binge mode to sign up and start watching today. That's V-U-D-U dot com slash binge mode. And now back to binge mode. Chapter 31, The Battle of Hogwarts. Ernie Macmillan, proud Hufflepuff, a prefect, and a member of Dumbledore's army, expresses our theme with the sharpness of a razor when he asks, And what if we want to stay and fight? The galleon is addressing the students and faculty in the Great Hall, and she's just outlined the evacuation plan to be overseen by Mr. Filch. What could go wrong there? (laughs) And Madame Pomfrey, when Ernie interjects, his question is answered with applause from the fellow students, also ready and willing to lay their lives on the line, and an assurance from McGonagall that those of age may stay and do their part if they so wish. It is a terrible and timeless hallmark of war that the young perish for their elders' sins. The Battle of Hogwarts is a unique chapter in the series, an epic all-out struggle between the forces of light and the army of the dark for the right to shape the world that Harry and his generation will one day inherit. No half measures, no politics, no arguments." The losses soon to be suffered there made all the more poignant because they're incurred not with the true hope of defeating the foe in open combat, but as a holding pattern, as a bid by the faculty and students to buy Harry some breathing room for what they know not. The equation is stark, lives for time. McGonagall's address continues, telling the students that there's no time to collect their possessions. Quote, The important thing is to get you out of here safely. It is truly an emergency, no less dire or pressing because they're opting into it. A Slytherin student. Asks where Snape is, and Megallion continues her star turn uninterrupted. He has, to use the common phrase, done a bunk. And the Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, and Huffleball tables cheer. Harry's walking the hall as Megallion speaks, still looking for Ron and Hermione. The students' whispers follow him as he goes. We have already placed protection around the castle, Megallion continues, not shielding her students from the truth of the challenge that awaits, but it is unlikely to hold for very long unless we reinforce it. I must ask you, therefore, to move quickly and calmly and do as your prefects. Her next words are crushed under Voldemort's high, cold
0: voice, which seems to exist all around them, emanating clearly as if, quote, from the very walls themselves, like the monster it had once commanded it might have lain dormant there for centuries. I know you are preparing to fight, it tells them. And some students scream. Others cling to each other in terror. Your efforts are futile, Voldemort continues. You cannot fight me. I do not want to kill you. I have great respect for the teachers of Hogwarts. I do not want to spill magical blood. The silence that greets these words is the only thing in the room other than their fear. It is the kind of silence that feels alive, like a thinking, breathing being. It, quote, seemed too huge to be contained by walls. And then Voldemort's voice splits that silence again, issuing a clear demand. Give me Harry Potter, he says and none shall be harmed. Give me Harry Potter, and I shall leave the school untouched. Give me Harry Potter, and you will be rewarded. You have until midnight. Every set of eyes in the room finds Harry. And then Pansy Parkinson, (laughs) whose Hogwarts career has been one act of spineless, privileged, sycophancy after another, shows herself more than ready to answer that particular call. But he's there! It's
1: very tough. She shouts,
0: Potter's there!
1: Someone grab him! She can't even... You won't even grab him. (laughs) Someone else do it. This is brutal. (laughs) Among the toughest of looks. (laughs) Very tough few moments for House Slytherin continuing a tough run in these chapters.
0: Awful. Before Harry can even react, though, House's Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaw answer as one. Rising wants at the ready to face Pansy and the Slytherins, leaving Harry, quote, awestruck and overwhelmed. It is a moment of utter infamy and eternal dishonor for Slytherin House. It is also a tragic one, ending, for the course of our story at least, though shouts to you, Albus and Scorpius, the possibility that the four houses of Hogwarts could band together fully, the way the Sorting Hat implored them to. Back in Order of the Phoenix, when it told the students of all houses, quote, we must unite inside her, or we'll crumble from within. Pansy just shattered that possibility.
1: (laughs) Fucking Pansy. Thank you,
0: Miss Parkinson. (laughs) Said Professor McGonigal in a clipped voice, you will leave the hall first (laughs) (laughs) with Mr. Filch if the rest of your house could follow. And the table's empty with those underage and unready to fight marching for the room requirement and evacuation to Hogsmeade. Harry sees that the entire Slytherin table is emptied. We will soon realize, however, that some of the older students did stay just to fight for the other side but that some of the of-age students dot the other three house tables. Half the Gryffindors, in fact, have stayed, forcing McGonagall to usher out those who are really underage. Tragically, Colin Creevy is among them, and we will soon learn that he managed to stay. Harry
1: asks Arthur where Ron and Hermione are, inadvertently worrying Arthur quite a bit, but before they continue this discussion, Kingsley steps to the dais to address the fighters. We've only got half an hour until midnight, so we need to act fast. Battle plan has been agreed between the teachers of Hogwarts and the Order of the Phoenix. Flitwick, Sprout, and Magallion will take groups of fighters to the school's highest towers in order to control the high ground. Lupin, Arthur, and Kingsley and their fighters will spread out across the school grounds to meet the threats head-on. He asks for someone to organize defenses at the school's myriad secret passageways, and the twins, with their marauders and mischief-aided expertise guiding them, volunteer. And what of Harry? Since the beginning of our tale, Ron and Hermione have been at Harry's side, and their absence now at this crucial moment momentarily freezes him. McGonagall snaps him to, Potter, aren't you supposed to be looking for something? (laughs) Incredible. And he sets off. The hallways are a tumult of wild energy, and so too are Harry's thoughts. From the book, he tried to calm himself to concentrate on finding the horcrux, but his thoughts buzzed as frantically and fruitlessly as wasps trapped beneath a glass. Without Ron and Hermione to help him, he could not seem to marshal his ideas. Even the Chosen One needs friends. He pulls out the Marauder's Map, but with so many people rushing to and fro, it's impossible to find their names in the chaos of moving dots. And he wouldn't be able to anyway, given that they're in the Chamber of Secrets. He closes his eyes, tries to shut out the noise, and thinks, Voldemort thought I'd go to the Ravenclaw Tower. Like a man climbing a rock face, Harry's thoughts find solid purchase on this fact— Voldemort feared Harry had connected a horcrux to Ravenclaw, meaning a horcrux is, in fact, connected to Ravenclaw. And from that handhold, Harry reaches out, searching for the next. No one seems to know of any other object associated with Ravenclaw, but how could Voldemort have found an object lost for centuries? Especially one that had eluded members of Ravenclaw's own house. From the book, who could have told him where to look when nobody had seen a diadem in living memory? In living memory.
0: Ah, that's it. What about the memory of someone who isn't living? Once before, Harry set out to seek counsel that only a ghost could give. After Sirius's death, when he sought out Nearly Headless Nick to ask whether his godfather could return to him as a ghost, it was a heartbreaking exchange, carrying out across the divide of time and experience and understanding. But it was also one that Nick had been readying for. Quote, I can't pretend I haven't been expecting it, he said when Harry called for him at the time. And from there, one of the most wrenching exchanges of the series plays out, with Nick explaining that Sirius will not have come back, that he will have gone on. That those who linger like Nick, who was afraid of death, stay behind, quote, an imprint of themselves upon the earth to walk palely where their living selves once trod. Forever carrying out what Nick calls, quote, a feeble imitation of life, instead of embracing, as Dumbledore so often talked about, that next great adventure, death. This time, Nick is not expecting Harry, is in fact shocked by his request. But Harry needs a very particular pale imprint. Running, searching, gazing across the chaotic halls, Harry at last catches the pearly glint of just the kind of being he needs. Nick, Nick, I need to talk to you. And when he reaches the ghost at last, he asks, Nick, you've got to help me. Who's the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower? The gray lady, Nick says, charmingly offended that Harry needs any ghost but him. (laughs) Ah, and there she is. Harry catches up to her just as she's gliding away through an empty hall, and he thinks that she looks beautiful, but also haughty proud. He asks if she's the Grey Lady the Ghost of Ravenclaw Tower, and she confirms, but, quote, her tone was not encouraging. This is not someone who's in the mood for a chat. Harry plows on. He must. Please, he says, I need some help. I need to know anything you can tell me about the lost diadem. The passage continues. A cold smile curved her lips. I am afraid, she said, turning to leave, that I cannot help you desperate now, the hour already advancing to a quarter to midnight, the battle drawing nearer with every breath that Harry takes. He pleads with her, insisting that this is not about glory or greed, as her comment about him not being the first student to, quote, covet the diadem indicates she thinks it is. It's about defeating Voldemort, he says. Quote, aren't you interested in that? And this is really expertly done by Harry. The castle is rallying all around them. All manner of being from wizard to literal stone statue coming together to stand against the dark. Hogwarts is her home, too. Will she answer the call to help defend it? Her cheeks darken in response to Harry's challenge. Of course I. How dare you suggest, she says. And he implores her then to help him. It is not a question of, she stammered, my mother's diadem.
1: Your mother's? The Grey Lady, it turns out, is Rowena Ravenclaw's daughter, Helena. Vintage rolling yet again, the Grey Lady, like the ghost of every house, has been present in this tale from the beginning, flitting palely across Harry's line of sight in our pages. And seven books later, it pays off. Harry assures her again that he doesn't want the diadem for personal gain, even for enhancing his own wisdom for the battle to come. But he's feeling hopeless just as he turns to leave. Helene drops another record scratch moment. I stole the diadem from my mother. You did what? Mm -hmm. I stole the diadem, she repeats, and we can feel her shame. I sought to make myself clever, more important than my mother. I ran away with it. Rowena Ravenclaw was apparently so humiliated by her daughter's deception that she hid the theft from the world, even from her fellow founders, pretending, to the last, to still have the diadem. But when she became gravely ill, Rowena wanted to see her daughter one last time, despite her betrayal. She sent an emissary, quote, a man who had long loved Helena, to find her daughter. Quote, he tracked me to the forest where I was hiding. But when the future Grey Lady refused him, he became enraged, stabbed her, killed her, and then turned the blade on himself. The man is the ghost we now know as the Bloody Baron. And the diadem? The diadem remained where the Grey Lady left it, in a hollow tree, in a forest in Albania. Dun-dun-dun! Quote, a lonely place I thought I was far beyond my mother's reach. Albania, repeated Harry. Sense was emerging miraculously from confusion, and now he understood— why she was telling him what she had denied Dumbledore and Flitwick. Because Albania, that rings a bell. What interests me most, Dumbledore said to Harry back in chamber, is how Lord Voldemort managed to enchant Ginny when my sources tell me he's currently hiding in the forests of Albania. Albania, where Bertha Jorkins went on holiday and never returned. You've already told someone this story, haven't you?
0: Harry asks her. Another student? Voldemort, Harry realizes went to Albania for a reason, because he knew where to find the diadem, had unearthed the secret from Helena when he wandered these same halls. And later, after his body was destroyed following his highly unfortunate run-in with an infant Harry Potter, the Dark Lord returned to those distant woods to lay up, gather his strength in the quiet, bide his time. All these years, We've wondered why Voldemort chose Albania as his lair. And of course, there was a reason. There is always a reason in this story. I had no idea, the Great Lady tells Harry. He was flattering. He seemed to, to understand, to sympathize. Well, yes, of course. Tom Riddle, we know, was a master charmer and manipulator. That's how he got Slughorn to open up to him about horcruxes. It's how he sweet-talked his way to learning about Hepsibus Smith's treasures It's how he blinded Headmaster Dippet and so many other Hogwarts professors, all of them but Dumbledore, to his true nature. Framing Hagrid in the process for the atrocities that Tom himself committed when he opened the Chamber of Secrets. Harry tells the Grey Lady that she's not the only person who was taken in by Tom Riddle's charm. And Harry's mind is racing now with what he's learned. Voldemort, he thinks, might have gone to retrieve the diadem right after leaving Hogwarts, before even joining Borgin and Burks. But of course... Voldemort would not keep such treasure in a tree in the woods after he'd turned it into a horcrux, a safeguard for his soul. Quote, no, the diadem had been returned secretly to its true home, Harry thinks. And Voldemort must have put it there. The night he asked for a job, said Harry, finishing his thought. Quote, but it was still worth trying to get the job. Then he might have got the chance to nick Gryffindor's sword as well. Thank you, thanks, he says. (laughs) His breakthrough tumbling out of his mouth. As has been the case for Harry so often throughout this book, the clarity, once it comes, comes in bursts, wave upon wave of realization washing over him. But there's still more to figure out here. He's sure now what the Horcrux is, but
1: where is it? Harry turns a corner lost in thought when suddenly a window explodes open and a giant, literally giant, figure crashes into the hall. Hagrid and Fang, back from the mountains, along with Grop, who, due to his immense size, has to stay outside after hurling up his half-brother and the pup. Harry, you're here! You're here! (laughs) But a rib-cracking hug isn't all that Harry gets here. A burst of light and scream tells him that it's midnight. The battle has begun. Hagrid and Co. are, ironically, as the half giant explains, answering Voldemort's pronouncement. Voice carried, didn't it? (laughs) Hagrid is returning to defend the school that's literally Uh been his home since he was a boy. And the young man who's as good as family. Where's Ron and Hermione? Hagrid asks. That says Harry is a really good question. They rush off without a destination in search of their friends, broken gargoyles outside the staff room, their decapitated heads muttering last words, the first casualties of the battle, and another reminder that Hogwarts itself is a giving life. The sight of them kickstarts Harry's subconscious. His mind zips to the marble bust of Rowena Ravenclaw at Xenophilius' house, and then to the statue in Ravenclaw Tower, and, like a flash, he has it, the memory of a third stone bust from the book. That of an ugly old warlock onto whose head Harry himself had placed a wig and a battered old tiara. <sighs> the shock shot through Harry with the heat of fire whiskey. Voldemort, Harry realizes at last, hid the horcrux in the room of requirement. Harry saw it there when he needed to mark the spot that he'd hidden the half-blood prince's potions book after using Sectumsempra Semper on Draco. That one horrifying moment of reckless violence proving invaluable to the quest. He touched it placing the warlock on the cupboard, housing the book, and a wig, and a, quote, tarnished tiara on the bust, quote, to make it more distinctive. Harry,
0: who understands Voldemort in a way that no one else, not even Dumbledore, really does, isn't surprised by this. Quote, Tom Riddle, who confided in no one and operated alone, might have been arrogant enough to assume that he, and only he, had penetrated the deepest mysteries of Hogwarts Castle. But, As we've said before, it's worth pausing here to really consider the unrivaled hubris on display here. As Harry thinks, quote, but he, Harry, had strayed off the beaten track in his time at school. Here at last was the secret he and Voldemort knew that Dumbledore had not discovered. He's referring specifically to the Room of Hidden Things, the particular rendering of the Room of Requirement that reveals itself to troublemakers or those in need of refuge. But Dumbledore, of course, has used the general Room of Requirement before. It's where he discovered those chamber pots that he spoke of at the Yule Ball and Goblet of Fire. It's where, in The Crimes of Grindelwald, he goes to consult the Mirror of Erised, according to the screenplay descriptions, at least. And Dumbledore is not the only one who came across the Room of Requirement. House elves. Those beings Voldemort has discounted so often to his detriment, most notably when he used creatures so cruelly to test the locket's defenses in the cave. Know of it, too. Dobby, remember, is the one who told Harry about the room in Order of the Phoenix when Harry needed a place for his DA lessons. It is known by us as the come-and-go room, sir, or else the room of requirement, Dobby told him. Recall, too, the state that Harry finds the room in when he goes to hide advanced potion-making there. It is so full of objects and secrets that he actually pauses to gasp. Quote, he was standing in a room the size of a large cathedral whose high windows were sending shafts of light down upon what looked like a city with towering walls built of what Harry knew must be objects hidden by generations of Hogwarts inhabitants. And Draco, of course, used the room requirement last year to repair the vanishing cabinet and transport Voldemort's own Death Eaters into the school. And yet, despite one of his own servants using the room to do his bidding and... We should note, using that particular version of the room, because remember, when Harry hides the book, he runs past the vanishing cabinet, and Draco will remind us in mere pages that that's the version of the room he inhabited. Voldemort still believed, still somehow believed, that he was the only one who had ever discovered this version of the room. This is arrogance and pride that defies comprehension. This is the kind of arrogance and pride that gets you killed. There could be no more fitting contrast to this blinding egotism than the bulk of the student body streaming through the Room of Requirement at the exact moment yeah. that Harry realizes Voldemort's mistake. The masses pouring through the place that Tom Riddle really believed he alone had discovered. It is perfect symmetry. The poetry in a
1: story that highlights the strength of humility, of pretension gone awry. Harry's introspection is interrupted by professors Sprout, Neville, and others running by with earmuffs and mandrakes. Every tool at their disposal will be used. Every bit of knowledge they possess turned into an ally in the war. The passageways quake as Harry and Hagrid run on, a massive explosion shaking the entire castle, which Harry knows, quote, is in the grip of enchantments more sinister than those of the teacher in the order. Fang, terrified of the shrapnel piercing the air, flees, and Hagrid gives chase. Harry runs past a group of students led by Fred and Lee Jordan, wands aimed down a secret passageway. From the book, Harry sprinted by elated and terrified in equal measure. He passes Mrs. Norris and a slew of owls. Mrs. Norris does battle against them. (laughs) And then Aberforth, taking a break between aiming jinxes to complain about the herds of students evacuating the school through his bar. And it never occurred to any of you to keep a few Slytherins hostage? There are kids of Death Eaters you've just sent to safety. Wouldn't it have been a bit smarter to keep them here? Tough luck for our guy Aberforth, Dumbledore here. It wouldn't stop Voldemort, said Harry, and your brother would never have done it. Harry has just lost a lot of certainty that previously defined his life, but he knows this. Just as he couldn't blast a maybe innocent man out of the sky, he can't keep students hostage and use them as ransom. Dumbledore wouldn't have done it, and neither can Harry. It's not in his heart, and that heart is what sets him apart from Voldemort. Harry leaves Aberforth with that jab and runs on, turning a corner and running straight into Ron and Hermione, their arms weighed down with basilisk fangs.
0: Where the hell have you been, Harry demands. Chamber secrets, Ron says. It was Ron, all Ron's idea, Hermione gushes. Wasn't it absolutely brilliant? Our friends... No, of course, the Basilisk Venom destroys Horcruxes. Now, they lost the Sword of Gryffindor, yes. Mm -hmm. The sword, of course, that Harry unknowingly imbibed with that venom when he slayed the heir of Slytherin's monster back in his second year. But the beast that generated that venom once haunted this very school and its carcass just hanging out down there. So Ron, showing true ingenuity. It's a great, great look for our guy Ron Weasley here. Took it upon himself to go right to the source. He even spoke parcel tongue wow. to get the passageway to open. Quote, it's what you did to open the locket, he told Harry apologetically. I had to have a few goes to get it right, but he shrugged modestly. We got there in the end. He was amazing, said Hermione. Amazing. Look at that big brain on Ron Weasley, folks.
1: Unbelievable! <laughs> Proud of my guy.
0: <laughs> they didn't stop there. They killed Hufflepuff's cup. Hermione did it. Thought she should, Ron says. She hasn't had the pleasure yet. Genius, yelled Harry. It was nothing, said Ron, though he looked delighted with himself. <laughs> and the timing couldn't be better. As explosions reverberate through the castle, Harry tells his friends what he's learned about the diadem, the horcrux hidden in the room of requirement. They head off to that very room, which is now empty of evacuating students, housing only Augusta Longbottom, Neville's grandmother, and Ginny and Tonks. Tonks, it turns out, could not bring herself to stay safely home with Teddy. A testament to her bravery and eternal desire as an order and a member of the Order of Phoenix to answer the call, but also a tragedy in light of what we know is soon to come. Mm-hmm. Harry asks them if there are still students in the passageway to the Hogshead, knowing that the room will only morph into the state he requires if no one is using this version of it. And Augusta the God says she was the last through and that she sealed it after her. Quote, have you seen my grandson? He's fighting, said Harry naturally, said the old lady proudly. Excuse me, I must go and assist him. Naturally. What a wonderful full circle moment for Neville here, the boy who once won house points for overcoming his terror enough to stand up to his friends, now leading the charge in a battle against evil incarnate. Tongs asks Harry where Remus is, and she takes off in search of her husband, unknowingly moving to join him one last time in life and then ultimately in death. Harry then tells Ginny that she has to leave the room, and she, of course, Never wanted to stay confined in the room in the first place, so she's all too happy to oblige. And when Ginny flees, Ron speaks. Hang on a moment. We've forgotten someone. Hermione asks who, and Ron says, The Hogwarts house elves down in the kitchen. You mean we ought to get them fighting? Harry asks. (laughs) Tough look for our guy, Harry Potter. No, said Ron, seriously. I mean we should tell them to get out. We don't want any more Dobbies, do we? We can't order them to die for us. The passage continues. bow bow <laughs> Isaac, I want mood music over the next five minutes. <laughs> there was a clatter as the basilisk fangs cascaded out of Hermione's arms. Running at Ron, she flung them around his neck and kissed him full on the mouth. Ron threw away the fangs and broomstick he was holding and responded with such enthusiasm that he lifted Hermione off her feet. Incredible moment here. Is this the moment? Harry asked weakly. And when nothing happened except that Ron and Hermione gripped each other still more firmly and swayed on the spot, he raised his voice. Oi, there's a war going on here. Ron and Hermione broke apart, their arms still around each other. I know, mate, said Ron, who looked as though he had recently been hit on the back of the head with a bludger. So it's now or never, isn't it? This is simply a perfect Moment, a perfect scene, an encapsulation of seven years worth of budding self awareness and discovery and love. Juxtaposed against the chaos, Ron and Hermione's first kiss, their long awaited culmination of their deeply felt but still unconsummated love, does not feel out of place or strange or wrong. It feels somehow exactly right, a flawless embodiment of the thing that sets our friends apart from Voldemort and others who would seek to tear them down. There may not be a tomorrow. And if there is, it may be unrecognizable to us. But we can make the choice today to fight
1: for what we want and who we love. Ryan Hermione, pink in the face and warm in the loins, agree to save the rest of their lovemaking for after the battle, conceding to Harry's request to, quote, just hold it in until we've got the diadem. And Harry has never followed his libido over his logic. Never once before, so he speaks of what he knows. (laughs) They exit the room of requirement and can see the signs of (sighs) worsening battle all around. Tonks and Ginny shoot past. Ginny now fully engaged in the fight. Good girl, Aberforth shouts after. Not everyone entered this battle as willingly as others. Not everyone was allowed to, but they're all in it now, united and determined. Aberforth shouts that the Death Eaters have brought giants of their own, terrifying to hear. Remember, Voldemort had sent envoys to the giants too, and Tonks asks if he's seen Remus. She's still trying to find her love. He was doing it all off, Abe tells her. It's tragic. After Tonks runs off, Ginny looks at Harry in terror. Quote, they'll be all right, said Harry, though he knew they were empty words. Harry begins to activate the room. I need the place where everything is hidden. It works, and as they enter the cathedral-like space, the sound of battle melts away around them. And he never realized anyone could get in, Ron asks, surrounded by towers of stuff. Listen, no shade at our dude Ron, whom we love. But if Ron can see in an instant that your plan is bad, Voldemort, it's really, really bad. Like, (laughs) if you were leaving stuff in an empty room, it'd be one thing. But there's, like, a lot of stuff here. Ron also is still completely lightheaded
0: from the kiss. Like, all of the blood is in his groin right now. And even in that state, he's, like, seems dumb.
1: Yeah. Harry leads them past the stuffed troll leg and the cursed (laughs) vanishing cabinet that he passed last year. But he can't recall where to go. Hermione tries to summon the diadem using Accio again. Always smart to try the simplest things first, but to no avail. They decide to divide in an effort to conquer. Harry moves deeper into the sea of possessions from the book, and then his very soul seemed to shiver. There it was, right ahead. Harry reaches for it, and as soon as he does, three words greet him. Hold it, Potter! Chilling. It's Crab. Zach Cram's favorite. Phoenix on Crab is... I just can't understand. It's- From
0: the man who brought you Phoenix Song for Roll and Phoenix Song for Wormtail. Phoenix Song for Crab. We bring you a Phoenix wrong. Song for
1: Crab. After not hearing of <laughs> Crab for many, many chapters, our first mention of him is that he likes to torture now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Finally found something he's good at, as we're about to see. Goyle and Draco Malfoy are also there. No, not here, not now. Not when Harry is so close. This can't be happening. That's my wand you're holding, Potter, Draco says. Not anymore, Harry replies. Winner's keepers. And boy, is he right. So right in a way that will swing the war itself. Draco reveals that he's using his mother's wand. And though Harry laughs to try to taunt him and stall, this is actually sort of sweet, a reminder ahead of Narcissa's decisive action in the forest. The Death Eaters and the Death Eater adjacent They have children too. Narcissa, with war waging around her, gave her wand, her weapon, to her son to keep him alive. What else will she do to try to ensure that he stays that way? We will soon see. Harry can't hear Ron and Hermione, and so he tries to buy more time by asking why Draco and his goons aren't out there with Voldemort. We're going to be rewarded, Crab says, speaking with a soft voice that Harry realizes he's barely ever heard before. These guys have gone to school together for six of the seven years that we've been in Harry's life. They hung back, he says, to try to find Harry and deliver him to the Dark Lord. And it is, we have to concede, an impressive plan. And so far, it appears to have worked. Now, Harry tries to mock them. He's literally like, good plan. But he can feel that he's trapped. He asks them, trying to inch back toward the tiara as he does, how they got in. And Draco reminds him that, quote, I virtually lived in the room of hidden things all last year. I know how to get in. They were hiding in the corridor outside when they saw Harry turn up and start talking about a daidum, as Goyle calls it. (laughs) <laughs> Just then, Ron pipes up. Harry, are you talking to someone? And without waiting, Crab strikes, casting Descendo on a massive mountain of items that crumbles right where Ron's voice had come from. And Harry hears Hermione scream too, and he casts Finite to try to slow the spill. Crab then tries the same spell again, but Malfoy stops him, telling him that he might bury, quote, this diadem thing, recognizing, to Draco's credit, that if Harry wants it, it must be important. But the shame on Malfoy Manor has spread its rotten fruit further than we realized. The boys who seemed to brainlessly obey Draco for so long aren't taking orders from him anymore. You and your dad are finished, Crabb says, and he casts Crucio on Harry, missing, but
1: hitting the bust and casting the diadem into the air, out of reach. Hermione rounds the bend, shooting a stunner at Crabbe, who's mid-murder threat at the moment, but missing him as Malfoy puts Crabb out of the way. It's that mudblood, Crab shouts. Avada Kedavra! <sighs> Well, this guy needs to die. I think we all agree on that. Harry is outraged. Quote his fury that Crab had aimed to kill wiped all else from his mind. Crab dodges Harry's stunner, falling into Malfoy in the process and knocking Draco's wand away. Harry disarms Goyle, but Crab, clearly the most dangerous and least hinged, still has his, and as Ron appears, Crab aims a killing curse at him. Just as Harry is telling Hermione where the Diadem went, she screams. Crab has conjured and fire. But, of course... He has absolutely no control of the magic uh-huh. he's wrought. Massive flames are pursuing them, and the water they cast at it is just evaporating in midair. That doesn't work with fiend fire. They all run. Draco carried the stunned Goyle. "Quote: The flames chase them as though they were alive, sentient, intent upon killing them. It morphs into the shape of giant beasts, serpents, chimeras, dragons." "Quote: The heat was solid as a wall around them. It seemed like the end, but then Harry spots a pair of brooms and he mounts one." Ron and Hermione, the other. All they can hope to do is fly to freedom as the cursed fire consumes generations of objects below. And perhaps more. More on this in The Seven. From the book, The Guilty Outcomes of a Thousand Banned Experiments, The Secrets of the Countless Souls Who Had Sought Refuge in the Room. Hear that, Voldy? <laughs> How did you think this stuff get into your... Countless your, souls! You dumbass! Countless! God. <laughs> <laughs> Harry flies searching for Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle, not wanting to leave even them to this fate. Quote, what a terrible way to die. He had never wanted this. And then he hears a scream. Ron tells him it's too dangerous, but Harry wheels and flies toward the sound and sees Malfoy and Goyle perched on a Jenga-like tower. He can't let them die. Goyle is too heavy for Harry to lift them both. Quote, if we die for them, I'll kill you, Harry. Ron says. He came back, too. Our friends are just great human beings. Incredible. He and Hermione hoist up Goyle. While Harry gets Malfoy, and as they fly for the door, they see the cursed fire creatures sending their prey higher in the air and, quote, in celebration. Among the hall, quote, an old discolored tiara. Harry dives, and with the seeker's instincts and reflexes, he grabs a diadem before it hits the flames. They fly through the near impenetrable smoke and reach the door just in time. Crab, Ron tells them, is dead. What a shame! It's very tough for broiled crab. (laughs) Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Literally hoisted on his own fiery petard by his own hatred. As they cough
0: and pant, more bangs shake the castle, and then the headless hunt arrives to join the fray. Everyone's getting in on it. Everyone's answering the call. Hermione spots the object on Harry's arm, and he lifts the diadem to examine it. He can see Ravenclaw's words engraved upon it. This is the genuine article. And he notices that a blood-like substance is leaking from it. Quote, suddenly Harry felt the thing vibrate violently, and then it broke apart in his hands. He hears a faint scream as it dies. And Hermione realizes that the fire they just escaped must have been fiend fire, one of the few substances on this earth that kills horcruxes, but so dangerous, so impossible to contain, that she wouldn't have even thought to try to use it. And there is something truly so fitting about one of Voldemort's followers destroying this horcrux because he had no idea— that it was worth protecting another cost of Voldemort's secrecy and his unwillingness to trust. But don't you realize, whispered Hermione, this means if we can just get the snake. In a matter of minutes, the cup and diadem have been destroyed. Harry does not yet know the truth of the horcrux within. Right now, it seems like they're down to just one casing. But they all fall silent as Death Eaters appear around them. They've breached the castle's defenses. They are inside, and they're dueling our loved ones and friends. Quote, Fred and Percy had just backed into view, both of them dueling masked and hooded men. Harry, Ron, and Hermione move to help, and the hood of the man that Percy is dueling slips, and we see that it's pious thickness. Hello, minister, Percy shouts. Did I mention I'm resigning? You're joking, Purse, Fred shouts, looking at the brother with whom he's just reunited with true glee, true happiness on his face. You actually are joking, Purse. I don't think I've heard you joke since you were... Fred's words halt as the air explodes around them. Quote, In that fragment of a moment when danger seemed temporarily at bay, the world was rent apart. Harry flies through the air, desperately holding onto his wand as he hears his loved one scream. Cold air reaches him and he realizes that the side of the castle, the wall, has been blown apart. He's bleeding freely. Quote, Then he heard a terrible cry that pulled at his insides that expressed agony of a kind neither flame nor curse could cause. This is tough. And he stood up swaying, more frightened than he had been that day, more frightened perhaps than he had been in his life. He finds Hermione and he grabs her hand and they make their way together to a huddle of redheads. No, 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 he hears someone shouting. No, Fred, no quote, and Percy was shaking his brother, and Ron was kneeling beside them. And Fred's eyes stared without seeing, the ghost of his last laugh still etched upon his face. In Sorcerer's Stone, Ronan issued the now-famous line, always the innocents are the first victim. Fred was not collateral damage. Make no mistake, he chose to fight. He bravely entered the battle to defend his family and friends. But his death robbed the world of more than just a life. It robbed the world of laughter, of the great innocence that only mirth can bring. Quote, we could all do with a few laughs, Harry told Fred and George when he gave them his triwizard winnings and Goblet. I've got a feeling we're going to need them more than usual before long. Fred gave us all those laughs, but now George has lost his twin. Molly and Arthur have lost his son, and the world has lost a true shining light in the dark. Someone who made it his mission to bring joy to others. It is an unrivaled tragedy. Jason, my mother, they say, never admitted that the diadem was gone, but pretended that she still had it. She concealed her loss, my dreadful betrayal, even from the other founders of Hogwarts. What else didn't they know? And what else don't we know about them? As the fate of Hogwarts hangs in the balance, please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know. By the Hogwarts founders.
1: In this section of the story, the trio must figure out a way to destroy Horcruxes made from relics that once belonged to Helga Hufflepuff and Rowena Ravenclaw. But they have a problem. sort of Godric Gryffindor is missing. What to do? Well, the first solution before Fiendfire, so helpfully intervenes, sh- shouts to Crab is to use fangs from the beast of Salazar Slytherin. So as the four founders' legacies delightfully intersect in this crucial stretch of chapters, it's time to examine each of them one by one. We'll go in order of their presentation in the Sorting Hat song in Goblet of Fire, when the hat that once belonged to Gryffindor sings, quote, a thousand years or more ago, when I was newly sown, there live four wizards of renown whose names are still well known. Bold Gryffindor from Wild Moor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen, Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad, Shrewd Slytherin from Fen. First up, Godric Gryffindor. Namesake of Harry's Hogwarts house and birthplace of Godric's Hollow. Godric, who has no known descendants, is perhaps best remembered for his dueling skill, which epitomized the bravery he would prize in students, and which included prodigious ability with both a wand and a sword. Quote, for more information on why wizards might have needed both, listen to the restricted section on Gryffindor's sword from the third Hallows episode. In a Wizard of the Month post on Rowling's old website, she described him as, quote, the most accomplished dueler of his time an enlightened fighter against Muggle discrimination and the first owner of the celebrated sorting hat. The hat and sword are the only two known relics of Godric's, and while Godric is the only one of the four founders with no known descendants, the hat at least ensures that his legacy carries on at the start of every new school year. His friendliness toward Muggles, meanwhile, was the key stress point in his relationship with Salazar Slytherin. The two were once great friends, but split over this disagreement. Next, Rowena Ravenclaw. A Scottish witch whose Wizard of the Month post declared her to be, quote, the most brilliant witch of her time. According to one of the Wombat quiz questions on J.K.R.'s old site, legend has it that Ravenclaw might have been the founder to choose the location and name of Hogwarts after she dreamed, quote, that a warty hog was leading her to the cliff by the lake. She is believed to have designed the intricate, ever-changing floor plan of the castle. From Helena Ravenclaw's story in the section of Howl's, we can deuce that Rowena was the first founder to die. Rowena was a great friend with Helga Hufflepuff and the Welsh, Witches is up next. While Gryffindor contributed the sorting hat, Ravenclaw, the name and location in Slytherin, uh, you know, the secret chamber that houses the scary monster, Hufflepuff's contribution to the new school was perhaps the most important and beloved of all. Food. Helga's Wizard of the Month post describes her as, quote, particularly famous for her dexterity at food-related charms. Many recipes traditionally served at Hogwarts feasts originated with Hufflepuff. Helga was known as a charming witch as well, with care and warm thoughts for folks of all backgrounds. And as we detailed in the restricted section on house elves, she brought those creatures to Hogwarts kitchens where they could experience working conditions without fear of abuse or mistreatment. Last up, Salazar Slytherin, the pure-blood wizard who left the school after fighting with his fellow founders about muggle-born attendees. According to a rolling tweet in April, his name comes from the dictator Antonio Salazar who ruled Portugal several decades before ruling lived there for a couple of years teaching English. Salazar Slytherin's Wizard of the Month description focuses on a set of various rare talents he possessed. Quote, Salazar Slytherin was one of the first recorded Parselmouths and accomplished legilimens and a notorious champion of pure-blood supremacy. He is the only founder with a known wand core. And in his case, a unique one. Salazar built his own wand with a basilisk horn in the center, and he imbued it with a special failsafe. So if he spoke a particular word in Parseltongue, the wand would sleep and prevent a potential thief from using it. Unlike his fellow founders, Slytherin can be said to have played a role in the creation of two different schools of magic. His descendant, Isolt, Sayer who, like Tom Riddle, was also connected to the Gaunt family line, founded Ilvermorny in the United States, but unfortunately for Selen's living wishes. At Ilvermorny, just like at Hogwarts, muggle-born witches and wizards, sorry, no madge born witches and wizards, can receive just as strong as an education as their half-and-pure-blood peers.
0: Jason, is this the moment? Oh, there's a podcast going on here. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Hallows chapters 29 through 31 Seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
1: Number one, on the occasion of Dolish's last mention in the books, let's take a moment to run through all his various failures in the series. Yes. He first appears in the headmaster's office in order when Dumbledore escapes the Ministry's clutches. Dolish takes a step in Dumbledore's direction, and the headmaster says, "Don't be silly, Dolish. If you attempt to or bring me in by force, I will have to hurt you." And of course, that's exactly what happens. He next appears in order as a member of the Ministry party that tries to apprehend Hagrid, and once again, is outmatched and fails to bring in his subject and prince. Dolish returns this time, tailing Dumbledore as part of new Minister Scrimgeour's efforts to track the headmaster. It wasn't kind. Dumbledore tells <laughs> Harry, "I've already been forced to <laughs> jinx Dolish once. I did it again with." The greatest regret. And then in Halos, Dalish is back. Once again, it's a punching bag for both sides. First, the Order knows he's an easy target for Death Eaters and therefore confunds him into thinking he knows false details about Harry's removal from Privet Drive. Indeed, Yaxley obtains the false info and gives it to Voldemort in the first chapter of the book. After the fall of the ministry, Dolish is retained as an employee, but his failures continue. First, Dick Cresswell stuns him and steals his broom to avoid going to Azkaban. And now Augusta Longbottom, (laughs) Beats him badly enough to send him to St. Mungo's. In a 2007 Pottercast interview, Rowling said, Dalish had to be good because he became an Auror. There's no denying that. But he has his weaknesses, and Dumbledore knew how to exploit them, let's face it. Anyone going up against Dumbledore, pre-trying on the Horcrux, pre-maiming his hand, anyone is going to be in trouble going up against Dumbledore. Even Voldemort didn't want to do it. So there's no dishonor to Dolish. She continued... But by the time Augusta Longbottom got to him, several people had attacked Dolish. I mean, I think he was a bit punch drunk by that point. You know, he'd become a favorite punching bag of the Order of or the Phoenix by then. So I don't think he was firing on all cylinders. But I really saw Mrs. Longbottom as a powerful witch, so I'm sorry. Incredible. Sorry, indeed. Tough look for our guy, Dalish. What a legend. Oh, my God. dear sweet
0: Dolish. <laughs> Number two. In 2015, Rowling began a tradition of apologizing on Twitter every May 2nd the anniversary of the Battle of Hogwarts, for a different death that she had written. The first death for which she chose to atone? Fred Weasley's. And when someone asked why she started with him, Rowling responded, quote, Fred was
1: the worst for me. Number three. Neville says that in the now compulsory muggle studies class, Caro teaches them, quote, how muggles are like animals, stupid and dirty. Now they drove wizards into hiding by being vicious towards them. Animals are great. They are. The first part, obviously, is prejudiced and untrue. But the second... Isn't so far from the truth, as we discussed on the restricted section on the International Statute of Secrecy. Muggles did grow increasingly violent and aggressive toward magical people, particularly magical children around the 16th and 17th centuries.
0: Number four, McGonagall is the Ravenclaw common room's riddle, and the eagle doorknocker commends her on a nicely phrased answer. This is notable because, as we explored in our restricted section on the sorting hat way back in the day, McGonagall, remember, was a hat stall. As an eleven-year-old witch, she sat under the Sorting Hat's scrutiny for five and a half minutes, Damn. as it debated placing her on Gryffindor or Ravenclaw before ultimately deciding on the former.
1: Likes to gamble, but also very brave. It's tough. <laughs> Number five, Seamus of the Room of Requirement. Here's Potter, bring your bathroom. let start turn up. And thought they'd like to wash. Yes, says Lavender Brown in reply. <laughs> Apparently, Harry isn't the only Hogwarts boy with absolutely deplorable <laughs> hygiene. Seamus. Disgusting. (laughs) Work it out.
0: Number six, speaking of the room of requirement, after Zach Graham's favorite Death Eater, Vincent Crab, conjured Fiendfire within the magical confines of the room, Ron Weasley asked, Blimey, do you reckon it'll still work? Well, good question. Fiendfire is an advanced and dangerous bit of dark magic, and the Pottermore entry on the room of requirement suggests it's quite possible that the room has, in fact, been destroyed. Quote, the room may no longer exist. Once Harry had retrieved the diadem horcrux, the room was overrun by fiend fire started by Malfoy's crony, Vincent Crab. The flames killed the foolish crab, but Ron suspected the fiend fire was so powerful it might have damaged forever the room the wizards need most.
1: Number seven, quote, with a tingle of horror, Harry saw in the distance a huge bat-like shape flying through the darkness toward the perimeter. Okay, so Snape can fly in bat-like fashion, fancies capes in an all-black sartorial sense, and hangs out in a dungeon, but he is not, in fact, a vampire. J.K. cleared this up in 2014, saying, quote, while it is true that Snape has an unhealthy pallor and is sometimes <laughs> described as looking like a large bat in his long black cloak, he never actually turns into a bat. We meet him outside the castle by daylight, and no corpses with puncture marks in their necks ever turn up at Hogwarts. In short... Snape is not a revamped truck car. This was a point of much fevered speculation in the lead-up to Deathly Hallows, and to be fair, there were a lot of clues. First, at the end of Stone, after Harry is surprised that his antagonist is not Snape, Quirrell, who was notably terrified of Snape and whose turban smelled like garlic, says to Harry, Severus, yes, yeah, Severus does seem the type, doesn't he? So useful to have him swooping around like an overgrown bat. This is just one of the numerous times J.K. has referred to Snape using bad imagery. Two, in Prisoner of when Snape subs for Lupin in Defense Against the Dark Arts, he has the class write an essay on how to recognize a werewolf. Later, in the chapter Snape's grudge, the following exchange occurs between Harry and Neville. What are you up to? Nothing, shrugged Neville. Want a game of Exploding Sap? Er, not now. I was going to the library and do that vampire essay for Lupin. This was theorized as being potential retaliation by Lupin against Snape. And at the end of the same book, after Lupin resigns, his defense against the dark arts post due to his lycanthropy becoming common knowledge. Seamus says, wonder what they'll give us next year? Landine says, maybe a vampire. And there is a vampire at Slughorn's Christmas party. Vampires exist in this universe. A lot of clues were there, I gotta say. (laughs) Mal, that was very gallant of you. But don't you you realize we have to stay alive long enough to award today's winner Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup, too. The Defenders of Hogwarts.
0: All of them. Yeah. Obviously, an iconic showing from Neville, who has emerged as a true leader
1: among the student body. All-time flex session from McGallion, yes. just showing off the pecs, the <laughs> biceps. everything in owning the caros and beating Snape and rallying her fellow heads of house to bring the castle to life. Mass arrival from the members of Dumbledore's army, the
0: Order of the Phoenix, and Harry's old Quidditch team really reinforcing how many people are with Harry in this fight.
1: Even our guy Percy showed up. Even Percy. Even Percy.
0: Everyone fights. Even the stone gargoyles of the building. Even those who, like Ginny, were told to stay
1: behind. And of course, Fred, dear Fred, gives his life.
0: All right, Peter Fred. Terrible. All right, friends, which came first? The podcast or the flame? We'll let you know as soon as Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, arrive to answer and let us in. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for the rest of this journey. And that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Deathly Hallows chapters 32 and 33. And it's gonna get dusty. Yes. It's gonna be a wreck. Until then, remember, if any of you attempt to sabotage our resistance or take up arms against us within this studio, then binge heads, we pod to kill.
1: Nice one, Pansy. What? You were thinking it too. You were looking at him, right? I mean, you know, why wouldn't we just grab him? You're a fucking idiot, Pansy. Shut up, Millicent. What have you ever done, Bullshrode? What kind of name is that, anyway? Millicent Bullshrode. Jesus.